Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Listen to the word of God. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall now murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going, going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, the, than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Gracious and merciful God, as your word was read and now as it is preached, would you by the power of the Holy Spirit give us understanding and move in our will so that we may respond with faith and obedience. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Back in my uh, days when I was attending seminary, I was uh, taking a class on Christian ethics focusing mainly on the works and the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. It was a pretty interesting, fascinating class. And I remember uh, one particular interaction in the classroom setting. This classmate, he um, began just speaking highly, and obviously we were all taking the class because we wanted to learn about Martin Luther King, um, his ethics, and what he has, the influence he has made. But as he continued to speak, um, he began to lift up the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. to the extent where he would encourage the classmates to, hey, we should add his writings into the scriptures. And he kept kind of talking. And then other classmates began to chime in and another girl um, agreed and um, thought it was a great idea. And um, I, began to get a little disturbed, wondering, it's like, are they even thinking through what they're really saying about the entirety of the scriptures when they are considering the idea of adding something to the Bible? And after a certain point, I, I couldn't just stay quiet, so I had to ask the guy who started the whole conversation, and I asked him, are you saying that the entire 66 books of the Bible is insufficient 
and teaching us who God is, what God has done to save us, and how we are to live in response. He just became quiet. I guess he didn't think through about the implication of what he was actually saying by considering the idea of adding something to the Bible. And the class continued to just talk about the writings instead of considering the idea of adding his writings to the scriptures. You see, this student thought he had such a high view of the Bible um, and wanted to add the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. to the scriptures. But he didn't realize that by adding to the scriptures, it was simply revealing his actually a low view of scriptures as if there is something insufficient. Um, today we are continuing where Pastor Eugene left off from chapter 5, verse 20, where ultimately we are reminded that Jesus came not to undermine the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. Um, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, thought Jesus had quite a low view of the law as if he came to abolish the law, undermine the law. Pastor Eugene, again, in weaving things through and setting us for us today, the word of God teaches us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 20 kind of sets up the thesis for the remaining chapter, that Jesus came to fulfill the law in its fullness. And that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we will have no chance. And the rest of the chapter, there are six examples going through. Jesus goes through what the Pharisees have been teaching and his response, his charge, how we have to live differently, to um, go deeper than simply the external that these Pharisees have been teaching. That righteousness, the way these Pharisees live, in fact, was too shallow. And that the original intent of the law that God has for us is far deeper. And that's what he expects. And that's what he demands of his disciples. Verses 21 to 22 sets up the first uh, antithesis. Um, now Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Um, Jesus knew that the Pharisees were thinking this way, that he was speaking against the law when in fact he wasn't, as if he was undermining the moral fiber of the nation and the people. They thought they had a higher view of the law. And as Jesus points out, actually, they had a low view. They focused on the external, but the law and its original intent, and the spirit of the law is about the heart. God wants your heart and my heart. Now, let's focus on what Jesus does not have a problem with. Jesus does not have a problem with the law of Moses itself. If you notice, when Jesus was tempted, he quotes scripture, it is written. But here, he does not say it is written. What, is this, what does he say? He said, you have heard. 
So Jesus does not have a problem with the law of Moses itself. What he does have a problem is he has a problem with the way the law of Moses has been interpreted by these Pharisees. You have heard it was said, and you have been following and living, interpreting and living out in these ways. That's what he has the problem with. Because the Pharisees, they ignored the heart part. They focused on the external, am I doing the bare minimum? They're not intent on understanding why this law was given and what's at the heart of the law giver and the law itself. Pharisees were kind of like those lawyers who are looking for loopholes. They want to and they seek to look for things. Is it legal? So as long as it's legal, it's okay. They're not asking, is it ethical? Is it moral? Is it permissible? Is it legal? Then I'm good. Not understanding the heart of the law giver. They see the law giver as this oppressive one. They don't trust the one who gives the law, thus they don't trust the law, that it is good for them. It is only when we understand and embrace that God's law was given by the one who loved us to death that we can begin to delight in the law. How else can we begin to delight in something unless we understand the heart of the one who is giving? In response to what they have heard, the interpretation, Jesus responds um, in verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to, listen to this, hell of fire. There's a progression. There is judgment before a local council to the supreme council, ultimately to the divine judgment before God. Now, there is a difference between righteous anger, which we see in the Bible, God expresses it, and unrighteous anger that's expressed here, because unrighteous anger is about murdering that happens in our hearts. I have murdered people in my heart, and perhaps we all have. With my thoughts, with my tongue, and happened pretty recently too. Jesus is pointing out when we are insulting and in anger, we are murdering them in our hearts. When we call someone, insult them, and ESV says insulting, um, in the original is calling someone nothing, like, or calling you fool. The root word for moron basically saying you are morally a moron. And chances are the Pharisees probably thought of Jesus as this. 
that Jesus is here subversive against the laws of God. He doesn't know God or God's law when in fact it is them who don't know. And by this definition, definition of murder that's far deeper, that is far more internal than externally physically killing someone, we commit murder more often than we like to admit. One seasoned pastor calls, says this, the difference between um, that murderer who actually kills and me and you is, is, is a difference of quantity, not quality. We just kill a little less, maybe. But at the heart, we are the same. We get angry, we lose our temper, we harbor ill feelings, we talk maliciously, we gossip, and we murder in our hearts. The Ten Commandments, besides the two in the middle, remembering the Sabbath and honoring our parents, are all negative commands. But when Jesus responds to the summary of the laws, he said, what? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and everything that you got. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's a positive command that challenges the heart because that's what God wants. Behind not murdering is really honoring the image of God and the created being in one another. So the question is, are we honoring the image of God in his creation as we interact with brothers and sisters, with people around us? The progression of judgment from the local court to the Supreme Court, Sanhedrin, to ultimately the judgment seat of God. Jesus uses the, the metaphor of Gehenna, which is a metaphor for hellfire. And seven times this comes up in Matthew. And by the way, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Because something serious is at stake. And the Hinnon Valley, which is referring to Gehenna, um, back in the Old Testament, ancient times, um, people sacrificed their uh, other people to the pagan god of Moloch in that area. And in Jesus' time, garbage was burning day and night. So it's a, quite a metaphor for this fiery, eternal judgment that awaits, that Jesus clearly speaks again and again, this eternal separation. And now, so we have murder, we have anger, so, and then Jesus continues by practically applying this. So in verse 23, he says, if you are offering your gift, so now application here, right? At the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and come offer your gift. Most of Jesus' disciples were uh, from the northern area of the Galilee. At most, they'll be coming to Jerusalem once or twice a year. Altar here is referring to the sacrificial um, altar as it entered the temple in Jerusalem. So as you're waiting in this long line of bringing an offering before God for forgiveness of your sin, to be right before God, to receive that forgiveness, you remember that someone has something against you. It's not that you have against, something against them. You remember that someone else has something against you. And what does Jesus say? 
When you remember that, leave the offering, go trek back, it's like 80 miles back to Galilee, be reconciled, and then come, bring your offering. It's a hard saying, but that's how much God expects reconciliation to happen in the church, in Christian community. Before coming to church, before going to a Bible study, before doing your devotional, before giving and offering your tithes, before doing all these good things that we should be doing regularly, if there are people in our lives as we look back and we know they have something against us, we have done something wrong against them and we remember that, we can't just pretend and go through the external movements of doing the religious thing. We need to go. We need to take the initiative. God calls us to go. Leave what you're doing. Be reconciled. Ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation, and then come. I was preparing this message this week, and I sinned, I murdered in my heart, I became angry, I said things to one of my kids and to my wife, I was mad. I went downstairs to the basement to work on the sermon. I couldn't. But my pride was so strong, it's like, I'm not gonna go and apologize. (laughs) And then I had to preach myself. It's like, you fool. (laughs) What are you what are you preparing right now? And I'm like, ah. And it took me a while. I had to preach to myself for a long time before I listened and obeyed and went up and confessed. I know my wife is standing, sitting right there, <laughs> avoiding eye contact. <sighs> I went up begrudgingly. There wasn't a lot of love in my heart. I know I needed more love of God in my heart, and I, kn- I knew that the Holy Spirit's power had to be more active in me. <laughs> I knew at the end of the day I had to obey the word or I'll be a big fat hypocrite, right? Trying to preach on something that I can't even, I don't even struggle with. And I remember, man, this is hard. What Jesus is asking of me is hard. How can I do this? And that gentle whisper as I read the word, it's like, you can't. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus finished. He came to fulfill the law. You think about the expectations in the Old Testament versus what Jesus is expounding. It's like, there's none righteous before God. And you look at the Old Testament, in that external sense of the word, it's still hard. Nobody can live up to it. And then Jesus raises the bar. Well, actually, Jesus clarifies the intent and reveals the bar was actually higher than you thought. And no one can meet up to that. And that's why Jesus said, you know what? I came to fulfill it. He didn't create another set of laws so that now, try to jump over this. 
No, I jumped over it. How is your heart? Is there a Christ-centered, Bible-honoring desire and commitment for reconciliation? Or do you not care? Or is that anger just kind of grabbing you and making you like pout? It's like, I'm not going to. I was like that a little bit. Will you let God's word examine your heart? Let God's word do some surgery. It hurts, but it saves. All our external good things, right things that we should be doing, studying God's word on our own with other people, worshiping together, singing together, etc. We ought to do them. But they are worthless. From God's point of view, if we fail to seek reconciliation with a brother or sister, how can we seek reconciliation and forgiveness from the God that who sent his son when we are unwilling to go out of our way to seek reconciliation with those that we can see? The third, the, uh, the third point within this uh, is an external illustration. So the one before has to do with fellow believer, right? Now, the next one in verse 25, 26 says, come to terms quickly. This is another illustration with your accuser. This is probably a non-believer. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's in the context of legal um, setting, again, emphasizing the need, seek reconciliation, even with an unbeliever. There are dangers that awaits you if you don't seek reconciliation. Let's go to the second main antithesis about lust. Um, Jesus builds on this. Um, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the Pharisees, these religious unbelievers, believe that the seventh commandment about committing adultery has to do with the act itself. And as long as they're not physically engaged in that kind of illicit sex out of the covenant relationship, they think they're good. They're okay with God. They have done what was legal. Jesus points out, that's not, you, you're missing it. If that's all you're thinking about, don't just simply focus on the external, but look at the heart. We see what's on the surface, but God sees a heart, and God wants our heart, and God wants to work through refining our hearts. Jesus had a higher view of the law, and these, the righteousness that these Pharisees had, again, was not deep enough. And Jesus builds by saying that if you look at a person, if, you, if you're a man and you look at a woman with lustful intent, then you have already committed adultery. 
Jesus is not saying looking in itself is wrong, but looking to. When something comes your way and you see it, that's not wrong. But if you keep on looking with an intent, if you look for something with the wrong intent, then that is when adultery of the heart happens. Remember King David, when kings went to war, he didn't, he stayed, he went up the roof, and he looked, and he saw a woman bathing. Now, at that point, he was not sinning because he didn't go out of his way to look. But when he continued to look, that's when looking moves to grabbing because he called for her. And then he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he murdered her husband, Uriah, the Hittite. Adultery, murder, murder, adultery. Lust simply makes you want pleasure and a general, generic person. Love, biblical love, makes you want a specific person. Biblically, it's about faithfulness in marriage or chastity in singleness. Those are the only two options. Faithfulness in marriage, covenant, or chastity in singleness. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he says the eyes are the gateway to temptation, especially for us men. Probably for women, maybe ears and relationships might be the gateway to the heart. We all need to be aware, be careful. With the access of media now, the temptation and the ease of access is unprecedented. And the same for the ladies. To get into relationship virtually has never been easier. So in response to what they've been learning or living about adultery and how adultery of the heart is with lust, Jesus responds with this really intense solution. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body going to hell. It's better to lose one part than the whole body to go to hell. It's better to lose an eye, better to lose an arm, than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is using a hyperbole here. Obviously, when you look, I don't know last time you tried to look with one eye, but I mean, I think typically we're looking with both. And eventually, I'm pretty sure when David committed adultery, he didn't just use one arm. But the point is this. We are to use drastic measures when it comes to sexual purity. It can't be just toyed with, decisive, drastic. Why? Because eternity is at stake. Why? Because heaven or hell is at stake. Why? 
not because God is prudish, but because he has such a high view of sex. One of our friends just this week, we found that she was diagnosed with skin cancer and um, she had to get surgery right away. So, uh, surgery went successfully, um, but now she has a scar on her face and it's gonna affect her probably for the rest of her life just because that scar is pretty visible. Um, but that's something that she had to do to live. The scar was a price that she had to pay because if she didn't attend to it, then the um, malignant tumor would continue to spread. Sexual sin is very serious. And we need to respond with drastic measure. Maybe for some of us, it's that person that you're interacting with. Maybe at work. Maybe you're traveling for work and you find yourself interacting. It might have been fine the first time, but as you keep on interacting, maybe things are happening here. Boundaries are being crossed. Or maybe for some of us, books that we're reading that's feeding our minds, magazines that we're perusing through, internet sites that we are looking at, chat groups we are talking at. You need to get rid of it like a tumor. It's going to hurt. But that's what Jesus is saying is at stake. Something drastic has to happen. You have to fight for it. You can't be lethargic or apathetic about it. You have to fight for it. You have to amputate the part that is affecting you and me. Because you know what? Both times here, with the eye and the arm, what's at stake? Your eternity is at stake. Hell is what awaits if you are not paying attention. Jesus talks about sex, talks about hell, and again and again here. Because he has such a high view of sex. Adultery is simply sex outside a covenant. So it is wrong to have sex without a covenant. In the scriptures, the only two options that are permissible is either faithfulness in marriage, covenant, or chastity in singleness. What if you don't have a spouse? So do you believe that God sends your way everything that is necessary? Do you believe that? And if he withholds, however long that time is, can you trust that he still has the best intent and that it is not necessary as God deems it, at least at that point, can you trust him with that? Can you bring to God 
I give to you my sexuality, my drives, my desires. I leave them at the foot of the cross. It's not going to be easy, but that's what he invites us to do and calls us to do. For all of us who have struggled in our lives in the past, and maybe some of us are struggling now, maybe most of us are struggling now, we have to choose to look at our sin through the cross. And as the scriptures remind us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as you see the seriousness of Christ's expectation and the original intent of do not commit adultery, do not even commit adultery here, the hard part, we realize that we are. The laws of God are far more holy than we can ever expect, that we cannot meet up to it. But when we are able to be secure in the finished, fulfilled work of the cross, we can be rest assured that God is far more gracious and able than you can imagine. That's why we come to the cross again. And as Pastor Eugene reminds us, we don't just start with the gospel, we continue with the gospel as you allow the gospel truth and the word of God to go deeper, not just the superficial external, but to the heart. Let the word of God speak into your heart, into your life. My parents had wonderful opportunities to talk to me and my brother. I have a brother who's two years older about sex, God's intent. In my years living in England, they had a couple of perfect opportunities to talk about sex as God created. You know, we were walking to church one day in London, and you know, back in the 80s, they had magazine racks. And I remember asking mom and dad, as a 10-year-old, how come they're not wearing clothes? They, didn't, they pretended they didn't hear me, and we kept walking to church. <laughs> they could have talked about it maybe later after church. No. We were watching a movie as a family, all four of us, and a lady, I'm still 10, you know, a lady jumps up on the table, rips up her shirt, and I look at my parents, they don't, they're not looking at me, they're just look, looking down. It's like, hello. It's almost as if sex is dirty. They didn't say it, but they clearly communicated that. Fast forward a couple of decades, give my dad some prop, he gave me a Christian book on sex and sexuality, a little bit too late. He taped the second half of the book saying it's too, too early for you to read, it was too late. But the fact that he gave me something was at least something, you know, I, you know, I appreciated. Never talked about it, but he said, and then he ripped up the second part, like, later in high school. It's like, thanks, Dad. So in our attempt to show how high of a view that God has on sex, his original design, you know, when our kids uh, started seventh grade, what we did, we just sat them down. Uh, we read through a book on Christian view on sex and sexuality. 
and just any questions okay about sex and sexuality. We went through topics of you know, sexuality and sex as God's idea, um, sexual orientation that you know, I know they'll um, face human bodies, etc., and etc. I wanted them, we wanted them to know that God is the creator of sex. That sex is beautiful in the covenant. God is the designer. I didn't want them to think or feel that it is dirty, but I wanted them to understand that God knew exactly what he was doing. And I wanted them to get that. And I wanted them to be free. I, I didn't want them to experience what I experienced too, also. But, um, and I wanted them to understand how high of a view God has on sex, what it means to be sexual, but look to God. Eternity is at stake, Jesus reminds us, because he has such a high view because he wants your heart and mine. As we look at, and I know Pastor Eugene will continue to go through, maybe after a break since next week's Christmas, are we looking at just the external? It's like, is this legal? Or are we asking, it is, is this moral? Is this the right thing to do? Is this something that God would want for you and me? Are we fighting for it? I want to just invite you as we continue during the season, as we draw closer to Christmas, that we see Jesus for what he has accomplished. He's come to fulfill the law. He has done it. And now we get to obey the law because law is good. Not to earn our salvation but because now we know we are saved through the fulfilled work of Christ on that cross, the empty tomb. Let's pray.